Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to ask a favor. I want you to check out Joe Trippy's podcast, That Trippy Show. You can find it wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Add that to your Lincoln Project listening. That Trippy Show, twice a week, wherever you find podcasts. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Ann Applebaum, a staff writer for The Atlantic and Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. She's also a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Agora Institute, where she co-directs ARENA, a program on disinformation and 21st century propaganda. Prior to that, Ann was a columnist for The Washington Post and was a member of their editorial board. She's published several incredible books, including her latest title, Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism, available wherever fine books are sold. She's a dual citizen of the United States and Poland and is coming to us today from the Polish countryside. Anne, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So Anne, today I want to talk about some of the ideas you discuss in the aforementioned Twilight of Democracy, as well as where you see the development of the authoritarian movement in the United States. But before that, I want to talk about your latest reporting on Ukraine and the war there. So as we're recording this today, it's about the six-month mark since Russia invaded. This was supposed to be a three-day military operation to clean out the drug dealers and the other criminals. And I put those all in air quotes as described by Vladimir Putin. It's also, as we record this, Ukraine's Independence Day. So sitting as close as you are to the action there, what's your sense of where we are six months on? Is this a stalemate? Is this the kind of situation where Ukraine is winning by not losing? And is there anything in your experience, having lived in Eastern Europe for so long, that has surprised you about the Ukrainians' resolve and NATO's resolve, frankly? So I think everybody has been surprised by the Ukrainians' resolve. And actually, resolve is maybe the wrong word here, because it's also the Ukrainians' creativity, their talent their ability to adjust and change the war according to what they were able to do. I was just in Ukraine a few weeks ago, actually, and I think it's probably important for Americans to understand that this isn't just a war being fought by an army. You know, we've got a little bit used to the idea that our army is, you know, we respect them and we admire them, but they're doing things far away from us and we don't really see them much. This is an army that is right out of civil society. Everybody knows soldiers. The battlefield is not very far away. And also, people are participating in the war, even people who aren't in the army, in a way that we would find amazing and surprising. And maybe this is the thing I will concentrate on. Many, many people who you meet are either volunteering for the army, they're collecting equipment for the army, they're raising money for the army, they're helping the army communicate or do things. They're helping refugees, they're building shelters for them, they're helping people resettle. You have a social and national involvement in this war of a kind that is really extraordinary. And that's also important because I think it explains, when you talk about who's winning and who's losing, why Ukraine is winning, because Ukraine is proving that it's a different kind of society from Russia, and maybe even one that's different from our own. It's a country where people are involved in the affairs of the nation, where people make big choices in everyday life in order to do something, in order to change things, in order to make things happen. Of course, there are people who aren't involved and there are people who left the country and maybe some people who will never come back. 
but those aren't the people who are running things and they're not the people who are going to be running the country after the war is over. And so you can see Ukraine changing itself and becoming rapidly different from Russia, which is a very apathetic society where opinion is highly controlled and actually where people aren't very involved in the war if they even know the war is going on. They don't pay attention to it. They don't talk about it. The evidence is that they don't oppose it, most of them, but also they don't particularly support it. So you have two different kinds of societies emerging. One is very active and one is very passive. And the Ukrainians, I think, are winning militarily, but they're also winning psychologically. They've stopped the Russian advance. They've prevented it from going further. They're now able to hit Russian targets, both in the occupied territories and in the territory of Crimea and even in Russia itself. And I think they've made it very difficult for the Russians to move any farther forward. I mean, we are at a kind of turning point. Next question is whether the Ukrainians can actually take back territory. But Ukraine has outperformed all expectations, both as I say, militarily and psychologically. And then I would say also the West and NATO have outperformed expectations. I mean, on the sixth anniversary of the war, you actually have pro-Ukraine rhetoric growing inside Europe. The president of France has shifted to be much more clearly pro-Ukraine. President Biden has made an announcement about further support. Of course, there are lots of people inside the Western coalition, including inside the United States, who are anti-Ukrainian or who don't want to fight the war or who are influenced by Russian propaganda. But right now, they're not winning. One question I do want to ask is about this generation of leaders in your neck of the woods, whether or not it's President Zelensky himself and his wife, the prime minister of Estonia, the prime minister of Finland. These are younger leaders. There's several female leaders, not only in Eastern Europe, but in the European community who have all taken hard stance. Obviously, the Finns fought the Russians to a standstill in 1940. The Estonians, the Baltic states were occupied for decades. Are these leaders that the pro-democracy forces around the world should look to as the resolve and the future of what we see as a pluralist, small-D democratic society? Yes, it's true. I mean, you can look at the Finnish leader, you can look at Zelensky, you can look at a number of other people, and you do see, particularly in Ukraine, the country is led by people in their 30s and 40s. They are people who've been formed by a particular set of events, like the events of 2014 and the memory of Soviet invasion. They're not people formed so much by the Cold War. They don't remember the Cold War. They don't remember Soviet occupation. They do remember the experience of becoming democracies or getting the possibility of becoming a democracy, and they're grateful for it and they're willing to fight for it. I mean, I think that's perhaps how you could characterize this particular group. And there are a lot of them. You do have a group of leaders who understand what's at stake in this war and are willing to be clear about it. And willing to put their lives on the line for it. You know, it's interesting how Zelensky, at least in the first part of the war, was able to unite the right and the left inside the United States and also inside some other European countries, partly because you know, we've had for a long time this kind of fake culture war between so-called liberal values on the one hand and then so-called patriotism, or sometimes you could call it nationalism, on the other hand. And Zelensky showed you can unite them together. He's defending not a nationalist vision of Ukraine, but a very open vision of Ukraine. And he's been clear about that. And I think that's one of the reasons he has successfully attracted so much support in Europe as well as North America. Let me ask you a specific question about the Ukrainian political system. Will elections continue there? Does Zelensky have to stand for election at some point in the near future? 
I don't know how elections will be possible under current conditions. So they might decide to postpone them. So I don't want to make predictions about that. But yes, as I understand it, Zelensky will stand for re-election at some point unless he decides to step down after the war is over. But certainly the people who are fighting for Ukraine and who are thinking about Ukraine's future believe that they're fighting for elections and that elections will continue. One of the other interesting things about the war is that although we focus on Zelensky and the leadership, one of the things that's made a big difference, especially in some of the places near the front line, is the fact that local mayors and local city councilors are elected. And mayors have often been very important in galvanizing the local population, in helping people resist, depending on what the need is. And one of the reasons they're able to do that is there are people who have some local standing. Everybody knows who they are. They took part in an election campaign. And so, in fact, in Ukraine, it's been important that democracy was seen to be valid at the local and regional level as well. And I think people will, after the war, want to continue with that tradition. Well, and anywhere your citizens are fortunate, I guess is the word I'll use, to be able to elect leaders but certainly local leaders, because, and you know, wherever you might live, it's those local leaders that will have a disproportionate effect on your daily life. It's things as mundane as the garbage getting picked up and traffic and those sorts of things. But now they're transcending that to one of a leadership role in more than just the municipal sense, and that they are figures in their own right of this. One question I want to get to is one of your recent articles of earlier this month in The Atlantic is about Odessa, and you referenced many of the same types of groups earlier that are doing incredible work under very difficult conditions. So give us a sense of your reporting on Odessa and how that is a broader explainer for the Ukrainian people. In Odessa, I met a huge range of people from a group of really very young people who had organized something they call the Ukraine Volunteer Service. And since the war, it's blossomed into this major, I mean, it has websites, it has chatbots, it has a huge social media. What it does is it helps place people who want to volunteer with groups that needs their skills. And that sounds like a small thing, but they found something like 100,000 volunteering jobs for people since the war began, you know, people who are accountants or taxi drivers, you know, they find someone who needs that particular thing and they've been sending them around the country. And as I say, the, the leader of the organization is a woman who's 26. She was a high school exchange student in the United States. She speaks kind of American high school English, which throws you off a little bit. But she's got this group of very young people around her and they've put together this very efficient operation. But you have these local groups who've dedicated themselves to doing this. I mean, I also met a group of women who sew costumes for Ukrainian snipers, so camouflage strips onto outfits for them. You know, you have all kinds of different people doing different kinds of jobs all across the range of skills and social classes and, you know, in different places across the city. And when you meet them all in a very short period of time, it's very impressive. It's very hard to imagine that happening in another time and place in quite so efficient a way. You can't characterize the volunteers as being either particularly old or particularly young or particularly rich or particularly poor. It's really everybody. I suppose you would have to say they're all people who feel strongly about Ukraine being Ukrainian. There may be other people around, especially in Odessa, which is historically a very cosmopolitan Russian-speaking city. It has a long history of being ruled by different kinds of people. But it feels now that the people leading the city and the people running the city have made this definite choice for Ukraine and Ukrainian-ness. And to them, that means 
democracy. It means freedom. It means Europe. It means being connected to the Western world. And so it's been six months and, you know, one wonders what will happen if this goes on indefinitely. But the decision to participate is connected to decisions about patriotism and about politics and about identity as well. You mentioned what happens if this goes on indefinitely. So let me hop out of Odessa and move up to Moscow. It appears that the casualties that the Russians have suffered far outpace anything that they suffered in eight, nine, ten years in Afghanistan, that the materiel that they have lost is significant. I mean, Russia is a giant country. You know, it's 10 time zones wide. It has lots of oil. It has nuclear missiles. But can it maintain a conventional presence another six months or a year with any effectiveness, do you think? And what does that mean politically for someone like Vladimir Putin? It's very hard for me to see right now how they can stay and be effective. I mean, I can imagine them trying to stay and playing defense, you know, for the next several months. But they have big logistical problems because so many of their bases and ammunition dumps that are close to the front line have now been destroyed by Ukrainians with the help of American weaponry. Very hard to see now how they keep their soldiers moving forward. They will have difficulty supplying them. They have a kind of supply chain problem. They also have a difficult recruitment problem. They have trouble getting people signing up to be in the army. One of the surprises of the war is that Putin has never called for a general mobilization. He's never asked in a loud public national way. They have not called on people to sign up even as volunteers for the army. They're doing it locally. They're doing, you know, posters and billboards and things like that in a few places, but not at a national level. And I should say, Russia now has, by some calculations, more political prisoners than it did at the time of Brezhnev. So it's not that there's no anti-war movement. It's just that it's very, very heavily and brutally suppressed. You can go to jail for 15 years for saying you oppose the war. Even using the expression war is forbidden because this is not supposed to be a war. It's being described as a special military operation. Even as we're speaking only yesterday, one of the last remaining elected public officials who was really an opposition leader, the mayor of Ekaterinburg, was arrested for having been openly anti-war. But that doesn't mean that the rest of society is pro-war. People are apathetic. They don't participate. They don't oppose it. Some of them write pro-war things on social media, but you don't see any kind of mass mobilization. You don't see people volunteering in large numbers. Those who do come from very, very poor, impoverished parts of the country, and they're doing it because they're being paid well. So Russia has a problem with personnel. It has a problem of getting people to fight and wanting to fight and being actively interested in fighting. And it has a problem of supply chains and logistics. And it doesn't look from where I'm sitting right now that those are easy problems to solve. So why haven't they done a draft? And the answer to that seems to be that the regime fears it would be unpopular. And so, you know, whereas you have in Ukraine this kind of whole society effort to maintain the army and in helping keep society together, in Russia you have the opposite. And over time, that has to make a difference in how well the Russians are able to fight. And maybe it begins to make a difference in how much support even there is for Putin himself. I mean, there are a few kind of signs of dissension in the ranks, the most obvious of which was the murder a few days ago of the daughter of Alexander Dugan, who was a kind of nationalist ideologue. His daughter was actually a nationalist ideologue as well. And she was murdered by a car bomb in Moscow in what most people assume was some kind of internal elite 
demonstration of force. The Russians, of course, have said it, have blamed the Ukrainians for it, but this seems very unlikely. Really? So you think this is a, not to make light of it, but this is sort of a Game of Thrones thing where one faction that maybe hides in the shadows is bearing its fangs a little bit. I don't see any other explanation unless we think that the Ukrainian secret services are so amazing that they could get people into central Moscow into a private event to put a bomb on somebody's car, which seems unlikely to me. But even more unlikely is if they were able to do that, why would they hit Dugan, who's of kind of secondary importance? But he is someone who could be a target for some Russian group that doesn't like the nationalist camp. Again, we don't have any evidence of any kind, but that would be my guess. Is the war causing Russian society to tip over from one that's been longstanding authoritarianism to something more resembling totalitarianism? Or has it always been that way and it's just becoming more evident now? It's been a kind of soft authoritarian country for a long time. And throughout most of the last 15 or 20 years, there was a pretty wide area of freedom. I mean, if you did culture, you did the arts, or you even did politics, there was a certain amount of freedom inside Russia to speak out and to even to be active. That started to end in the last 10 years. And slowly, freedom was curtailed. There was the assassination attempts against Navalny, Alexei Navalny, who was one of the most important opposition leaders in Russia. And so you've seen this narrowing of the public space. And then really, when the war broke out in February, when the invasion began, you saw it narrow to almost nothing. Anybody who's active or spontaneous in any way now has trouble being so in Russia. And you've also had a huge exodus of independent media. Almost everybody associated with opposition circles, I mean, thousands, actually, tens of thousands of probably Russians are now not just in Europe, they're in Turkey, they're in Armenia, they're in Georgia, they're all over the world, really, trying to reconstitute their lives. So you have now this exodus, you have a very narrow and constricted public space, you have cracked down on all Western social media, I think, with the exception of YouTube. So yeah, I mean, totalitarian is always a difficult word, because Pure totalitarianism is almost impossible, but you can talk about a regime seeking to be totalitarian, and you could say that you have that now in Russia. You know, they're trying to close the public space, make it impossible to say anything that's against the official line about the war and about Putin, and that's much harsher. It's a much different kind of regime than Russia had 10 years ago. Well, and pair that with the apathy of so many Russians, it seems fertile ground for that. And let me ask you this. If there are still many Russians who remember that kind of society, do they just sort of go passively by because to do otherwise is to put your life on the line? I'm sure there are some people like that, but those are mostly very old people. You know, the Soviet Union broke up in 1991. So anybody who's under the age of 45 doesn't really remember it as an adult, certainly. I mean, there is a tradition in Russia of being wary of power and even a way of talking about power, you know, that most ordinary people don't want anything to do with it. So we just want to stay away from power. We don't want anything to do with the authorities. We don't want anything to do with public life. And it's, I'm sure that that's something that was passed from grandparents to grandchildren, you know, as a warning, you know, just keep away from those people. And that's probably quite deep in the society. I mean, it's not genetic, but it's a cultural habit. We don't participate. We don't protest. We just get on with our lives to the extent that we can. 
But, you know, apathy is what the propaganda is designed to encourage. You know, the constantly changing narratives, you know, the different explanations that are given are meant to confuse people. And there is no point in public participation because you don't ever really know which side is which. You know, the Russian leadership wants apathetic people. And that's a great segue to the twilight of democracy, which I actually regularly now send to people. There's so many parts of the book. And if you haven't read it, guys, it's incredible. It's a fast read. But you close the book with this idea that one of the key things that a civil small d democratic society needs is a common discussion or a common argument, which now in the United States, one side clearly, I guess I'll call them conservatives because I don't know what else we're going to call them. Republicans, I don't know want to have that continuing narrative you just referenced with the propaganda, the misinformation, the disinformation. I think you could even use what we've seen in the last few weeks with the search of Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago, which is first it was illegal, then they had planted things, and now we're all the way up to I had a standing order for declassification. And so you can see this happening, and I guess in real time, even here in the United States. Yes. I mean, one of the most disturbing things for me in the last several years, and I started to see it in 2015, was the way in which a part of the Republican Party, I think we can call them Trumpists, and I'm not going to tar the whole Republican Party because I don't think everybody falls into that category, but a part of the Republican Party began to use what I would describe as Russian tactics and began to seek to shape the views of their followers in a way that is familiar to me from autocratic discourse. I mean, it's pretty clear that that piece of what used to be the Republican Party has adopted them. And as you say, I mean, this ability to constantly shift and change the narrative so much that people begin to lose track of what's really the truth and begin to sense that, well, the truth doesn't really matter and we can't really know it and we just have to stay away from it or attack the left or, you know, start talking about communists or whatever it is that they do instead in order to avoid uncovering or even revealing to themselves the, the real truth, which is that the former president whom they support stole highly classified documents from the White House, was keeping them at his hotel and showing them to we don't know who. And the fact is that that's illegal. And it's also unpatriotic. What kind of a commander in chief treats classified documents that way and that lightly? So in order to avoid facing up to the fact that he's unpatriotic, even traitorous, that he's violated the rules of public life and he's kept stolen documents, and as I said, in his hotel, which is visited not just by his family, but by lots of other people. You know, my impression of this, I don't know what you think, is that the FBI and the DOJ did not start document recovery thinking that the point of it was to lock up Trump. You know, there was this long paper trail. I mean, they were trying to just get the documents back, figure out what they were and get hold of them and figure out who'd seen them and what that might mean. And that seems to be what was going on. And the fact that Trump resisted it, it looks like this is a trap the president set for himself. You just hit on it. I was going to bring it up, but you beat me to it, which is so many of the things that this man has gotten himself into trouble with, starting with something like trying to dig up dirt on Joe Biden in Ukraine with his quote unquote perfect phone call. You know, you could make an argument, maybe it's not causation, but certainly correlation that but for Rudy Giuliani and these other goons rooting around over there, maybe other Democratic presidential candidates go after Joe Biden on Ukraine. But once Trump entered the fray, they had to circle the wagons around Biden. 
led ultimately to his nomination and ultimately defeating Trump. And this is the other part, Ann, which is if he had just given these things back as bad as they might have been for him, there is a good chance that none of them would have been declassified until our grandkids had grandkids. They'd be in a giant vault somewhere that no one was ever going to get to see. Of course. I mean, as I say, all he had to do was, first of all, not take them in the first place. Second of all, give them back when the archives wrote to him and asked him politely. That was end of story, and we wouldn't even have heard about it. But it's his mania or his narcissism or whatever it is that makes him think he needs them or wants them or maybe his greed, maybe he has a financial use for them. Honestly, I don't know. It has to do with his personality and his particular form of madness that meant that he wanted to keep these things and that he kept defying these repeated requests to give him back. And then, as I say, it's the bizarre behavior of people around him who continue to make excuses for that and who partly I think it's in order to cover up to themselves what they're doing. Nobody wants to think of themselves as coming to the aid of somebody who's unpatriotic or duplicitous. And so instead of acknowledging that that's what's happened, people make up other stories in order to disguise the truth about Trump from themselves. I mean, I think that's what half of this is. So right before the election in 2020, we wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post asking our former Republican friends, if Donald Trump loses and refuses to go quietly, you're going to cross that river with him. And and they all crossed it with him. Now, a bunch of them sort of got scared off in the wake of January 6th, but they've all crossed back over. Maybe they never came all the way back to the side of democracy, I guess, if I'm going to oversimplify. But is that unusual? Because it seems like these kinds of characters, the strong man, you know, as Ruth Bengiot has called them, kinds of characters seem to magnetize these folks, not only in the inner circle, but also in these sort of outer rings of their existence, their power, their influence to allow people to do things that, to your point, they otherwise would not do. Is that a normal thing? It's a thing that happens in autocratic countries. So in that sense, yes, it's normal. You know, and as I say, there are different kinds of motives. People closer to Trump, they see a job opportunity by being close to Trump or by supporting Trump. You know, some politicians clearly see that by supporting Trump, they think they'll get popular support. The harder thing to explain is the people farther away who don't have any advantage from it. And as I said, the best explanation that I have is that like the Russians who don't want to admit to themselves that this is a terrible war and it's a horrible mistake, there are people who don't want to admit that Trump is a unpatriotic person who stole classified documents. It's too hard a thing to admit. You know, you don't want to think of yourself or your party or, you know, the people who you support in politics as being bad people. And so they continue to make up stories that justify what's happened. Let me ask you this. In these sorts of movements, let me do this. You call them Trumpist. I'm going to call them ultra MAGA because I think that the ultra MAGA has even moved past Trump a little bit in its sort of virulence and willingness to use the kind of language you were talking about, Russian in origin, and, you know, threaten violence and those sorts of things, although Trump has never been afraid to do that or employ it even. But is what we see in the front groups, as Hannah Arendt would call them in her book, right? We have the Federalist Society, which we just learned got a $1.6 billion contribution. Turning Point USA, the Conservative Partnership Institute, Cato, the Heritage Foundation, all of them who have gone through these things and they make up an ideological framework 
that allows these ideas. How do you counter something like that when, as we like to tell our, our friends on the Democratic side of the aisle, big D Democratic side of the aisle, what you must understand is these people are organized, they're well-resourced, and they're relentless. How do you fight back about that? Or is it that they have to, as a movement, spend all this time, money, effort, everything else, because they know that they're generally out of step with American society or American politics, and they need to spend all this to get one, two, three more points on election day? Is that a normal part of authoritarian movements that there's all of this infrastructure, as I guess we'd call it today, that sort of supports the direction towards an authoritarian country? What all these groups seem to have in common is their dedication to achieving things that the majority of Americans don't want. Most Americans are not aggressively in favor of ending all abortions at the moment of conception, for example. So the people who believe that know that they're up against the majority of the country. So how do you pass laws or change the rules against the majority? And the answer is you have to begin thinking undemocratically. And then some cases it's about how do I get in power? And once I get in power, how do I stay there? And how do I stay there even if I'm voted out of office? And this is the way anti-democratic thinkers behave everywhere. And it's not right wing or left wing. You can look at Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. This is how he thought. He didn't think just how do I win an election in Venezuela? He thought, how do I win an election in Venezuela and then never lose again? Viktor Orban, how do I win an election in Hungary and then never lose again? They do so by when they come to power, they change the rules. I mean, it all very often has to do with courts or it has to do with governing the media or rules governing the opposition or funding or the voting system or the constitution, whatever it is in any particular country that can keep you in power against the will of the majority, you do it. And that's what I think these different Republican linked groups have in common is that they're looking to change the rules against the will of most people. Right. So let me ask you to look in a crystal ball. The discontent amongst Trump's most rabid supporters, probably not new, but he gave it voice. He gave it an embodiment. He's out of office, but it appears likely that he will attempt to regain the presidency. But he's not alone now. You have other potential contenders. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida is often mentioned of this. But if Trump, let's say for some reason, decided not to run again, does he still lead the movement? That I can't tell you. I mean, that depends on the movement and the people in it and also whether he wants to lead it. It seems to me that he does. So he's going to lead something, whether it's a movement in the party or whether it's a movement outside the party or whether it's just a nonstop fundraising campaign, you know, to pay his personal expenses. I don't know. But he's certainly going to dominate the conversation on the right for a long time. It seems interesting to me that in some ways, when they talk about whether or not it's amongst the Republican elite, the rich Lowry's of the world who sort of hop back and forth based on where they think they need to be for their own purposes, you know, big time donors, they think that if Trump just went away, everything would go back to normal, which feels like a very sort of 2015 mindset as far as the core of the Republican Party, because you can have all the big money guys and all the consultants and everybody else and the D.C. insiders say, like, we just want Trump to go away. And they might. And they probably desperately do because they want some, quote unquote, sense of normalcy back. But it seems that they don't yet understand that the voters still want Trump. And I think you can see that in so many of the U.S. Senate and gubernatorial nominees. Like, 
they may go down because they are his choice and they are found wanting by a broader electorate. But when push comes to shove, where decisions get made at an electoral level within the Republican Party, he's still the biggest dog and everybody else has to follow his lead, even if that leads to their own political downfall. Yeah, I think he's changed the party. He's changed its values. He's changed the way it talks. And that's not going to change even if he disappears in a cloud of smoke tomorrow. I think that's fair to say. I mean, if Trumpist, Trump style, whatever word we're using, candidates lose in large numbers in next November, you could get some rethinking inside the Republican Party about how to avoid that happening again. You know, ultimately, lots of people are imitating Trump and copying Trump and wanting to be like Trump because he's an example of success, right? I mean, he won the presidency. So once it's seen as a thing that loses, then you could get a change inside the party, I imagine. But we're not close to that yet. Well, and before we let you go, what are you working on now, first? And second, where can our listeners find you online and where can they find your writing? I'm working on a couple of long-term articles, one about Russia, one about international democratic movements. I'm thinking about writing another short book based on a big piece I did for The Atlantic a few months ago on the nature of modern autocracy and the way in which they work together. But yeah, I mean, my work is on the Atlantic website. You can find me on Twitter. I think it's at Ann Applebaum, which is pretty straightforward. You know, wherever you buy your books, I won't tell you which website to go to. I've written books about democracy. I've also written a lot of books about Soviet history, including the history of Ukraine. I wrote a book about the Ukrainian famine. I wrote a book about the Sovietization of Eastern Europe after the war, which is very much what Russia is doing right now in occupied Ukraine. So that's where you can find my past thoughts. And I have just started reading Gulag, another one of your books for which I believe you won the Pulitzer Prize, which gives a ground level view of what it was like to be in one of those facilities, but also how they even came to be and the political underpinnings that allowed it. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen and Applebaum. I want to thank you for taking time today. Everyone else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. And Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.